If you're like me and enjoy tales from the darker side of history, then get yourself on a forbidden Vancouver walking tour. Your guide will share tales of mobsters, riots, corruption, bootlegging, hidden treasure and unsolved murder as you explore Vancouver's most interesting nooks. From the back streets and alleyways of Victorian Gastown to the forested trails of Stanley Park. Forbidden Vancouver's had over 1,500 five-star reviews on TripAdvisor and are winners of the prestigious City of Vancouver Heritage Medal of Honour. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% on your booking using the code COLDCASE. This is Episode 2 of Cold Case Canada, the brutal murder of seven-year-old Roddy Moore, who was killed on his way to school in 1947. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. In 1947, Vancouver was still in flux after the war. There were a lot of transients as young men poured in from all over Canada in search of work. The city experienced a housing shortage, boarding houses sprang up, and people lived in squatting communities around the city. Roddy Moore was one of six people murdered in Vancouver that year. Seven-year-old Roddy Moore had moved to Vancouver with his mother Nettie just three months before he was murdered. He was settling into Grade 1 at Begbie Annex School in Vancouver's Renfrew area and he seemed happy to walk the few blocks to his school alone, especially now that Nettie was eight months pregnant. It usually took the little boy about ten minutes to walk each way and he came home for lunch every day. On the morning of Friday, October 17, 1947, Roddy waved goodbye to his mother and left by the front gate. It was pouring rain. Roddy walked down East 8th Avenue until the road dipped and then up again to Rupert Street. In the 1940s, there were only four houses on the west side of Rupert Street, while across the road, the land was still undeveloped, mostly bush-skirted what is now Thundermere Elementary School. In 1947, though, Nine houses lined East 7th Avenue between Rupert Street and the school, where the school's soccer field sits today. Normally, Roddy would cross Rupert Street and then continue along East 8th to the school. But on this particular day, he met up with a young friend and they decided to race each other the rest of the way to school. His friend took the regular way to school, while Roddy took the trail through the bush that the kids often used as a shortcut. When Roddy didn't come home for lunch, his worried mother phoned the school. They told her that he hadn't arrived, but was probably just playing hooky and would turn up later that day. When he didn't come home, a panicked Nettie phoned police. Albert Lockwood was one of the first people to join the search for Roddy on the day that he went missing. The Lockwoods lived less than a block from Roddy's home, and Albert's young son Tommy and Roddy were friends. The search for Roddy continued all weekend, and by the Sunday morning, Albert was joined by dozens of volunteers searching through the scrub and looking for any trace of Roddy. Albert was accompanied by Billy Young, a 15-year-old John Oliver Secondary School student from the area. They were poking through the bottom of a deep trench near the search headquarters at Roddy's school. The area had been combed through three times already, and Albert didn't expect to find anything. But something caught his eye as he stepped over the hollow. 
and he pushed back the bush with his foot. At first Albert thought he'd found a dead dog buried under dried bracken. He looked again and he saw that it was a boy wearing a brown wool jacket. Roddy had lain in that shallow grave just three blocks from his house for more than two days. One side of his head had the imprint of a steel hill plate. His skull was smashed and one of his ears was completely severed off. As police interviewed family and other witnesses, they were able to piece together Roddy's movements on the morning he went missing. Police thought they'd caught a break when Gertrude Braden, who lived nearby on Rupert Street, told them that she'd heard someone scream, don't, oh please don't, just after 9am. She told them she'd heard children's voices outside, then a long drawn out shout. It scared her, she said, enough to go down to the basement and check on her young grandson, Billy, but apparently not enough to phone police. About an hour later, Gertrude told police that she saw a man aged somewhere between 25 and 30 walking south on Rupert Street. She remembered him wearing a short tan-coloured raincoat and she thought he looked nervous and was glancing around suspiciously. While Roddy hadn't been sexually assaulted, police believed he was grabbed by a pedophile soon after entering the trail. They believed his murder occurred fairly soon after he'd been stopped. The theory was that the pedophile had tried to seduce Roddy, and when Roddy screamed, he panicked and smashed in the little boy's head with a shingler's axe. Roddy's twisted body lay on his right side. His school books lay by his outstretched right hand, next to an envelope with Roddy printed in blue crayon. His shirt front was torn open, his left hand was clenched, and he was curled up in a fetal position. The official cause of death on Roddy's death certificate was compression of brain with haemorrhage due to fractures of skull, lacerations and contusions of skin, face and scalp. Dr Crichton, the pathologist, believed that one severe blow knocked Roddy to the ground, cutting the left side of his face. He was then beaten on both sides of the head. At the autopsy, the pathologist found at least ten different wounds on various parts of his head. Dr Crichton determined that the multiple blows to the head could have been caused by the same instrument, either the blunt, rectangular end of a hatchet or a rock. Police and about 80 volunteers from the local high school conducted a thorough search of the area looking for a murder weapon or any clue to the killer's identity. Police scientist Inspector John F.C.B. Vance was called to the crime scene. He took blood and earth samples but dozens of searchers, reporters and photographers had already trampled all over the area, destroying any forensic evidence that the rain had not washed away. A photo on the front page of the Vancouver Sun shows a Detective Sergeant Fred Fish pounding a stake into the ground with a hatchet to mark the spot where Roddy's head had been pounded into the ground. Another detective looks on, hand on his thigh and hat pushed back on his head. Born on November 23, 1939, Roddy was a slight, dark-haired, friendly little boy. He had blue-grey eyes and long lashes and a small but prominent scar over his right eye. His mother said that he was scared of the dark and wary of strangers. His classmates said he was a quiet, shy little boy. They would have been surprised to learn that Roddy had seven siblings back in Saskatchewan. Roddy's mother, Nettie Moore, 
was born in Ship Harbour, Nova Scotia in 1914. She moved west at age 11 when her widowed mother took a job as a housekeeper for Len Moore, a farmer and road grader who lived in a small settlement in northern Saskatchewan. By the time she was 18, Nettie was carrying the 43-year-old Moore's baby and they married soon afterwards. Leona was born in 1932. I don't think that it was, you know, a love match. Her mother made a marrier and um, it was just there. <laughs> the dad was 25 years older than mum. She was 18 when I was born. He was in his 40s, I guess. And he got her pregnant and grandma made him marry her. Now my dad and my grandmother were the same age. And mum had eight kids, one right after the other. Living on a farm and a homestead. What sort of farm was it? It was a dirt farm, I guess. Oh. It was northern Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. I mean, we always had lots to eat. We always planted a huge garden. Dad always killed every fall. He killed a beef and a pork, and we had turkeys and chickens. We had lots to eat. Mm-hmm. We didn't starve. We didn't have money, per se, but we had food. And everybody around us was in the same predicament. It was, you know, it was no big deal. Len Moore worked with the highways department in North Battleford, a town more than 200 kilometres away from their farm. He'd be gone from May until October, and Nettie was left to raise the children in a two-bedroom log cabin with no electricity, telephone, running water, indoor toilet, or money. One morning in June 1945, Nettie got up, packed her bags, took Roddy, and left. She moved in with her friend Jessie Hall, who lived in Meadow Lake, Saskatchewan, about 25 kilometres away. Nettie's seven other children went to live with their grandmother and were eventually parcelled out to live with different relatives. Leona was 13 the last time she saw Roddy and 15 when he died. She believes that her mother took Roddy with her because while Len was a father on his birth certificate, his actual father was a Matee man who would subsequently be referred to in police reports and by Len Moore as a half-breed. From the very beginning, Dad said that he wasn't his. I don't know whether he was or not, but he was uh, quite a bit darker than the rest of us kids. All of us are quite fair to what he was. And Dad claimed that Roddy wasn't his. What sort of kid was he? He was a quiet kid. Well, he was just quiet. He never caused any trouble. He was just one of the bunch. There was so many of us. Uh, we lived in a log cap, so there, wasn't, there was two bedrooms, a living room and a kitchen. Why do you think your mother left? I think because uh, she just wanted her freedom. She was tired living out on the farm all by herself and raising a whole bunch of kids and having nothing. And and she'd had a nervous breakdown and she tried to kill herself. And I think that I never asked her, but I think that that was what it was. When Jessie's husband landed a job in a sawmill in Westbridge, British Columbia the following year, Nettie and Roddy went with them. Nettie got employment as a cook for $40 a month and she and Roddy moved into a small house. She met and quickly hooked up with John Turner, an Englishman from Sheffield who worked at a logging camp. 
Nettie was soon pregnant, and when she was closer to term, Turner wanted her to be near a hospital. He sent Nettie and Roddy to live with his mother, Alice Williams Hooper, who ran a boarding house in East Vancouver. Roddy and Alice quickly bonded. The little boy thought of her as his grandmother, and she was devastated by his death. Probably because Nettie was eight months pregnant and deeply distressed, it was Turner who talked to the press and signed Roddy's death certificate. He told the reporters that he was a partner in the Zamora sawmill at Westbridge. That was a lie, he wasn't. He also said that Roddy loved to fish with him in the Kettle Valley River. Only two weeks before his murder, he said Roddy had asked him to take him back to Westbridge. Turner was hardly the benevolent stepfather he claimed to be. It soon came out that he frequently hit Roddy and often forced him to sleep on the floor of the bunkhouse of the logging camp. As police started to investigate Roddy's murder and his background, suspicion fell on his two stepfathers, Len Moore and John Turner. Len Moore was in hospital in North Battleford at the time and was eliminated from the investigation. John Turner had been working in Westbridge, about 460 kilometres away, and he only heard that Roddy had disappeared the day after he went missing, he said. He took the train to Vancouver and arrived a few hours after Roddy's body was discovered. While both Moore and Turner had a motive for killing Roddy, the murder didn't appear premeditated. Roddy's movements that morning were random, and police believe that he met his killer not far from the entrance to the trail. Police continued their investigation, going door to door and interviewing dozens of neighbours, family, known sex offenders, and older school children who were missing from class on the Friday of the murder. After just a couple of days of being front page news, Roddy's murder quickly disappeared from the newspapers. Possibly this was because of the lack of leads, but more likely because even though a vicious murder of a small child shocked Vancouver, it was just one more act of violence at a particularly violent time in history. Earlier in that year, Vancouver police officers George Oliver Lettingham, aged 39, and Charles Boys, aged 38, were gunned down and killed while trying to stop a bank robbery. The Vancouver Sun reported that it was just the latest development in an all-out war between members of an apparently well-organised underworld and the fighting Mad City Police. According to The Sun, in less than two days after Chief Constable Walter Mulligan's warning that the gloves were off in a war against city crime, Vancouver had seven burglaries, two hold-ups, one of them armed, two attempted robberies and 19 thefts. It was Walter Mulligan's first year as police chief, and his concern was mostly centred around the transportation strike, which had started on October 20, 1947, the day after Roddy's body was discovered, and it lasted right through until November 18. The Vancouver Police Department's annual report of 1947 notes that the resources of the department were completely overwhelmed with handling the tremendous volume of traffic on city streets during that month. Vancouver was still in flux after the war. There were a lot of transients in the city. Young men had poured in from all over Canada in search of work. The city was experiencing a housing shortage, 
2,635 boarding houses had sprung up, ones just like Alice Hooper's, and people lived in squatting communities in Vancouver and throughout the Lower Mainland. In 1947, Vancouver's Renfrew area was still a long way out of the city and surrounded by bush. The patch of undeveloped land where Roddy's body was discovered had seen problems in the past. The year before Roddy died, police had warned children not to walk through the bush near the school after reports of child molestations had increased. Parents told reporters about attempted abductions and it seemed as if nearly every family in the area had a story about a close call with a pedophile and one of their children. One father told reporters that a man had offered his seven-year-old son Leonard a dime to go into the bush with him just a few months before Roddy's murder. Another told reporters that his small daughter, Ruth Marie, had been chased on several occasions by a man dressed in dark clothes, wearing a hat and carrying a cane. The mother of nine-year-old Donald, also a student at Begbie Annex School, said her son had told her a man was hanging about the school trying to coax children into the bush about a week before Roddy's murder. Parents were so worried that they called police, she said. Other people from the neighbourhood talked about a hobo jungle less than a kilometre from where Roddy was killed, and this was confirmed when a searcher found two comforters and a blanket in bush not far from Roddy's murder site. They'd been stolen from the clothesline behind a cabin at the Hollywood Auto Court two weeks before. Yet, even with all these reports of attempted assaults, it took the murder to galvanise the neighbourhood into action. Parents organised a convoy system to see their children safely to school and back. They took out their fear on the undeveloped land and they petitioned Mayor Charles Jones to clear the bush, threatening to take to it with flamethrowers if he didn't. It was enough to motivate the city and crews quickly stripped everything back to ground level. Roddy didn't just disappear from the media. All traces of him were obliterated from the Turner household. It was as if he'd never existed. Three weeks after Roddy died, Nettie gave birth to Alice. The little girl was named after John's mother, and she was the first of what would eventually be five Turner children. Patty Turner was born in 1950, three years after Roddy died. Like her other brothers and sisters, she grew up not knowing either that she had a murdered half-brother or that she had seven half-sisters and brothers back in Saskatchewan. By 1960, Alice Hooper had sold her boarding house and she was living with the Moore family in a house on East Pender Street. One day, 10-year-old Paddy was looking through some boxes in a basement when she came across one marked Roddy. The box contained some sympathy cards and photos of a young boy. One of the photos showed the boy with Paddy's grandmother on a streetcar, and the other showed a little boy holding a cat. When Paddy asked her parents about the little boy, she was told that it was none of her business. Roddy was never spoken about in the house. When I talked to you, God, it was probably five or six years ago now, but you, yeah. were, you were quite convinced that it was your father who killed still Roddy. Am. You are. I still am. Absolutely. There's no doubt in my mind that my father had something to do with it. Whether he was not in town and he could not have killed Roddy, 
I guarantee you he has something to do with that case. I guarantee you 100% nobody's ever going to change my mind on that. Patty, tell me why you think your father killed Roddy. You know, there was never a shrine about Roddy, okay? There was never nothing about Roddy in our house. Nobody knew about Roddy in that house until I was 10 or 11 and I found the story on Roddy when I found all the death familiar on him. And when I questioned my father about Roddy when, uh, years down the road when I found out when Leona said there was something to do with maybe my father had something to do with this, when I went to the home that day and asked my father directly, did you have anything to do with Roddy's death? I need to know, Dad, and I need you to tell me the truth. He says, you stay out of it. It's none of your business. I said, it is my business. He's my brother. He said, I don't care. It's done and done. Done and over with, Patricia. Leave it alone. I said, I'm not going to leave it alone. If you had anything to do with my father's death, I will never talk to you again. And he said, then good, don't talk to me. Patty says that soon after she found the box with Roddy's things, her father and grandmother got into a loud fight. Grandmother said that day when she said she saw my and the devil in her mirror. And my grandmother was very religious. She was Catholic. And she said, the devil's come to get you. And John, she said, Roddy is in heaven, but you're going to hell for what you did to that kid. She said, you knew you did it. You know you did it. And when I questioned my grandmother about it, my grandma said, how do you know about Roddy? I said, well, because I heard you say it to Dad last night. And he said, she said, never mind. You'll find out one day what your father really did to Roddy. After the fight, John Turner threw his mother out of the house. Patty's grandmother, Alice, moved into a rooming house, and she died the following year, age 74. After that, things really started to deteriorate for the Turner family. Nettie got a job as a cook on the Northland Prince, a passenger boat that went to Alaska and she was now gone for much of the time. Patty and her father fought constantly, and when she was 12, he put her into foster care. She never lived at home again. Later, when Patty asked her mother to tell her who Roddy was, Nettie told her he was her older brother who had died in an accident. She never talked about Roddy or his death again. When Leona Moore, the oldest of Nettie's 13 children, turned 21, she moved to Vancouver to reconnect with her mother. It was the first time that the Turner clan learned of their mother's second family in Saskatchewan. But it wasn't until after Nettie died from cancer in 1973 that Leona told Paddy the truth about their brother Roddy. Paddy immediately suspected that her father, John Turner, a gambler and an abusive alcoholic, had either murdered her half-brother or hired someone else to do it. But if John Turner knew more about Roddy's death, he never spoke about it to his family. In 2006, Paddy contacted Vancouver Sun reporter Jerry Ballot and told him her story. Ballot facilitated a meeting with Sergeant Fielding, the head of homicide for the Vancouver Police Department. Because the case was unsolved, Fielding wouldn't let them see inside the file. Ballot described it as dog-eared and yellow with age, and barely two inches thick. But he did say the officer answered some of their questions. Sergeant Fielding told him that this is the kind of case that gave them nightmares. Even with all the advances, they may still not have got a better result of solving the murder today. 
These type of cases, he said, were the hardest ones to solve. Over the last six decades, the area around Rupert Street has undergone a huge transformation. Houses now line both sides of this street, Alice's boarding house has been replaced by a new house, and a house sits on the spot where Roddy's body was found all those years ago. It's over 60 years, but he isn't forgotten. There was never a headstone. I guess Mum couldn't afford it at the time. And a few years ago, I guess it's about 12, 14 years ago, my sisters and I got together and we put one on. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. This podcast is based on original research and interviews that I did for a chapter in my book, Cold Case Vancouver, The City's Most Baffling Unsolved Murders. To see photos of Roddy Moore or find information about my books, podcast or my Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada, please visit my website, evelazarus.com. And if you haven't already, please check out my first true crime podcast, Blood, Sweat and Fear. I'm Eve Lazarus and I'm a reporter and an author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. I host and produce Blood, Sweat and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance. Vance wasn't a police officer, as his title suggests. He was the first forensic scientist to work for a police department in Canada and certainly the first to carry a badge and a gun. Vance was so good that he was known as the Sherlock Holmes of Canada and his forensic skills were so advanced that in 1934, there were seven attempts on his life by criminals afraid to go up against him in court. Each episode follows a different major crime that Vance helped to solve. You can find Blood, Sweat and Fear on Apple, Podbean or your favourite podcatcher. <laughs>